first Monday of every, of every month. Uh, is that right? Yeah. And uh, we usually have a speaker speak to our men's group, and when we do, uh, we pray for the speaker before. Uh, we prayed for Josh uh, earlier tonight, but I would like to pray now before he speaks. So would you please join me in prayer? Lord, we love you, and we are so thankful, Lord, that you have brought each one of us here. We know none of us are here by accident, Lord, and we wait on you, Lord, now to join us and enrich us with your word and the good news and the saving grace of your gospel, Lord. I specifically now lift up Josh. May his words be your words. May his heart be full of your spirit. May any pride and any ego be beat into humility. I know that he loves you, Lord. I know that he loves your gospel. I know that he can apply gospel truths to every aspect of his life. May each man here hear these words, Lord. They are your words from Josh's heart and from his mouth. Bless him now as he speaks to us. Bless the other speakers and bless the rest of this conference. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you men. I have prayed for you for months prayed about this meeting for months, and uh, it's so good to be with you. When I was first asked about this opportunity, uh, of course, as you would expect, uh, I turned them down um, for a number of reasons. Most of them are obvious to you. Far too young, far too inexperienced, uh, far too sinful to talk to anyone uh, on almost anything connected to the gospel, and certainly too much of all of those things to speak to men about leadership. So it's been a puzzle to me as to why they would ask me to come, as it has to you as well, I'm sure. Until I arrived at the conference coordinator's house this afternoon, then it all came clear to me. Uh, Jeff and I were at a conference together several months ago, and uh, one of the speakers said, it's such a pleasure for me to be at this conference, invited to speak with this man. I would fly across the country to cut this man's grass. Well, I pulled up to Jeff's house and noticed that his grass hadn't been mowed since the snow melted. And uh, you guys have received a good deal of rain and grass grows here, unlike in Colorado. And so we're talking, you know, bring a swather out and bail that lawn up. I mean, it was pretty bad. And to make matters worse, McKeever had no lawn mower. It's not just that he himself wasn't mowing, he didn't have a mower. So I tried to remedy that this afternoon and uh, mowed his grass, and uh, I think I've fulfilled my purpose for coming. Um, <laughs> I do want to tell you, though, I don't know which one of the neighbors uh, has the dog, but someone was deliberately indicating, look, buddy, you don't mow your grass, we'll treat your yard like a vacant lot next door. And I uh, encountered a number, a number of those little landmines as I mowed this afternoon. <laughs> But uh, got her done, got her done. Gospel-centered leadership is the theme that I've been asked to speak to. And uh, if you have any familiarity with leadership in the culture or in the evangelical church, you know full well that there are scores of books on the subject of leadership. Uh, uh, I, I decided that tonight I wanted to preach 
a sermon from one passage in the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look in Numbers chapter 20. But what I was really looking for when I selected a text was somewhere that would give us some qualities, something right out of the gate we could latch on to. What is biblical leadership in a gospel-centered sort of way? You know, leadership qualities, Peter Drucker has his five. Uh, John Maxwell has his 21 irrefutable laws, you know. John Piper has 22 qualities of a leader. John MacArthur has 26. No pressure, you know. 26 things you need to, and, and no disrespect intended to those men. But uh, I, I, in, in my reading, I came across a, uh, a man named John Byrne who wrote several years ago in Director Magazine. Uh, he concluded that the shape of a man's head was the key to his success in leadership. What do you think about that? Sound pretty good to you? Here's a further insight from John Byrne. A pear-shaped head is the ideal. Guys at Berean are feeling good right now. We have a, there's an elder here who has a pear-shaped head. I won't name a name, but uh, they're, they're feeling good about that because they have a guaranteed powerful leader. Well, let's see if we can do better, okay? Let's see if we can do better than pear-shaped heads being what qualifies us. And by the way, I want to say this too. Every one of us is a leader, brothers. Everyone, everyone, not just pastors and elders, not just the CEOs or business managers. Husbands are leaders. Dads are leaders. Friends are leaders. If you're a friend of someone, you're a leader. And I hope to unpack that a little bit more in just a few moments as to what exactly leadership is. Numbers chapter 20 gives us several principles, some in the positive, some in the negative, all connected to the gospel, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. So, Numbers 20, verse 1. The people of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff. And assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give to drink to the con and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them. Hear now, you rebels, 
Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them, he showed himself holy. Father, we pray again that in this word you would show yourself holy. There's no God like you. Whom have we but you, Lord, in heaven, in earth? Earth has nothing we desire besides you. You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And so we come and we pray that in this meeting you would give us yourself. You would show us yourself. You would show us your glory. And I pray in particular that you would show us the heart of our redeeming Savior in this passage. I pray that you would shape us in the image of that redeeming Savior, cause us to conform to the shape of the cross. And I pray that you would do it as the Spirit takes this word and broods over this assembly for his glory and for our joy in you. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Stanley Jones was a missionary in the uh, early part of the 20th century, and uh, he tells the story of another missionary who was lost in the African bush, and he plunged through some vines and thick grasses, aimlessly really, looking for the trail, and uh, stumbled upon a hut, and pushed through into the hut, and there met a native African, and begged this man, missionary begged this man for help, told him he couldn't find his way and asked if this uh, national man would lead him out of his danger. And so the African wordlessly picked up his machete and began to hack through vines and grasses and apparently lead the missionary back to the trail. An hour passed. And the African had said nothing, just continued to hack at the vines and grasses. And the missionary, as Stanley Jones told the story, became more and more alarmed and finally asked, "Uh, excuse, are are we going the right way? Are you sure this is the right direction? I don't see a path. And the African chuckled and said over his shoulder, Buana, in this place, there is no path. I am your path. I want to suggest to you that that's a picture of leadership. And I thought long and hard and prayed about what will it mean to come speak to men in the Detroit area of all places in this country, of all places where the discouragement is potentially the greatest and the darkness is the deepest. And I want to suggest to you that, gentlemen, it's in situations like this where leaders are the path. But we're Christian men, aren't we? I hope, most of you. I don't want to leave it at that and just say, leadership is being the path. 
There's nothing Christian about that message, is there? I want to suggest to you that Christian leadership is leading people to God, influencing people toward God. Let me shift the metaphor a bit. Uh, There's a place in Death Valley National Monument called Dante's View. From Dante's view, you can look almost 300 feet down, actually from Dante's view, it's well over a mile down, to 300 feet below sea level and look into the lowest place in the continental United States in Death Valley. But from Dante's view, if you lift your eyes a little bit to the west, about 75 miles away, there rises above the landscape Mount Whitney, 14,500 feet above sea level, the highest point in the continental United States. Dante's view. From that place, you can see into the lowest and up to the highest. And I want to suggest to you, brothers, that Christian leaders are men who, by the power of the gospel, have the courage to look down to the lowest, darkest, deepest, saddest, most discouraging places and see the darkness there and can, from that same vantage point, look up to the highest place and see right from where they stand the glory of God and then be the path to that place. How do we do this? Well, we do it all by the gospel. And I want to suggest to you before we jump into Numbers chapter 20, that leadership that is truly Christian, leadership that is gospel-centered, is leadership that is derived from the gospel. It conforms to the shape of the gospel, and it's all for the purpose of the gospel. And I'll do my best to unpack that, not so much tonight, but tomorrow. Leadership that is truly Christian, that is distinctively Christian, is leadership that is derived from the gospel in its message, leadership that conforms to the gospel in its shape, and leadership that is for the purpose of the gospel as its goal. That's Christian leadership. That's cross-centered leadership. I've directed your attention to Numbers chapter 20, and uh, we will see in this passage, we will learn, Lord willing, some truths from the example of Moses. Some things that Moses does in this example are exemplary, wonderful. In our best moments, we long to be this way. And some things that he does in this chapter are obviously grievous and horrendous. And we learn about the gospel from both. To set it up for you a little bit, though, I need to remind you of where we're at. Most of you don't take numbers as the place where you go for your daily devotions. So, uh, and that's no offense against you. Numbers isn't the best place in the world to go. It's a pretty discouraging book. But to set it up for you, to help you remember what's going on in this book, things have not gone well for the nation of Israel since they left Mount Sinai. They received the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, obviously, a couple of books ago. But most of the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and several chapters of Numbers between Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and now where we're at in numbers, most of that is all God giving his expectations for these people, all of the law. In Numbers chapter 20, they finally leave the the foot of Mount Sinai. 
Did I say Numbers 20? Numbers 10. In Numbers chapter 10, they finally leave the foot of Mount Sinai, and immediately things go badly for the nation. It's exemplified by the names that they give the places where they stay. In Numbers chapter 10, in uh, verse 3, they call the place where they stayed fiery blaze, probably not something good. A couple of days later, they stay at a place and they end up calling it graveyard of gluttony. Things are not going well for the people of God since they've received the Ten Commandments. Well, just a few chapters later in our account, they come to the edge of the promised land, which is the whole point of this journey out of Egypt, to get to the land. In fact, brothers, they come to this very place. They come to Kadesh, same place. And what happens there? Well, they rebel. They don't believe. They see the inhabitants of the land, and all they see are the inhabitants of the land. They don't see their God with eyes of faith. And so they turn away. And God turns away from them. And the judgment that he pronounces upon the people at that point, 40 years prior to this, is that every single one of these people, age 20 and older, is going to die in the next 40 years. That was only six chapters prior to Numbers chapter 20. Do you know how you can go six chapters and have 40 years pass? You know how? Because there's not a lot to write about when you're just digging graves every day. The nation at that point was probably two million strong. If half that number was 20 years of age or older, they had to bury a million people in 40 years. That's 70 people a day. They were digging graves and filling them in every day. And so this wilderness wandering has really just turned into one massive graveyard. It's a pretty good object lesson for this new generation. And in fact, that's the point of verse, tw of, of verse 1 in chapter 20. If you notice at the end of verse 1, Moses, the writer, tells us Miriam died and was buried when they got to Kadesh. It's a signal to us that that whole generation has passed off the scene. Even Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. Those are the only two guys left now. Forty years and about a million people, all dead. They've come full circle back to Kadesh, the place where the nation's original unbelief forced this new group to bury their parents. They know what Kadesh means. So have they learned a lesson? Are these people any different 40 years later? New generation with eyes of faith, is that what they exemplify? No. We see them doing the exact same things that their parents did. At this point, it's not unbelief that God's going to bring them into the land. It's unbelief that God can even meet their needs right now, right where they are. They complain, and you see the complaints in verse 2, no water. Verse 3, they quarrel against Moses and Aaron. And it's stunning. Their rebellion is stunning. Look at what they say. They identify themselves with their brothers. Would that we had perished with our brothers who perished before the Lord. They identify themselves with the rebels, Nadab and Abihu, Korah and his gang, and all of the skeptics who died in the desert. These are thick-headed people that God's asked Moses to lead. 
And as I mentioned already, we're going to see Moses do some things well and some things poorly. And in so doing, he demonstrates for us how the gospel functions in our leadership. The first thing that Moses does well is he identifies with the people. You see that? Do you notice what Moses does when their complaints come against him? Verse 6. They go from the presence of the assembly to meet the Lord. Moses multiple times has placed himself between this rebellious nation and God's vengeful wrath. He could have stood aside and watched as God's righteous wrath fell on these people. After all, it was their problem. It wasn't his problem. He wasn't the complainer. He wasn't the faithless one. But he identifies himself with these people and intercedes on their behalf to God. He doesn't stand with God against them. He stands with them before God. And brothers, this is where it starts. This is where leadership starts. Above our people, looking down, there's no reflection of the gospel in that. None. Husbands who perceive that their place in the home is above to be served, no reflection of the gospel in that leadership. That's not biblical, cross-centered headship in the home. Arguably, the whole message of the scriptures is that God wants to be with his people. God, God wants to be with his people. In the Garden of Eden, he's, with, he's there. He's with them. And of course, the fall changes everything. And so he gives them the law And in giving the law, he tells them, if you will keep this law, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he gives them the tabernacle. Why? So that they can have his presence among them. Likewise, the temple. God wanting to be with his people. When God takes flesh on himself and comes to earth, what name does he take in his incarnation? Emmanuel, God with us. And we read in the book of Revelation chapter 21, John sees a holy city coming down from heaven from God to take its location here on earth and hears a loud voice that says, the dwelling place of God is now with men. He will walk among them and be their God and they shall be his people. Arguably, the whole scripture is about God's great heart of love to be with his people. And so the leadership that flows out of that is a leadership that identifies with people. Doesn't stand above them. Doesn't expect to be served. Doesn't look down. And so let me just ask you. Let me ask you. Do you perceive yourself as above those you lead? somehow better, more entitled to being served than serving. This is a deadly trap, brothers, and it's the way our hearts are naturally wired. Do you perceive yourself as above them? Do you begrudge giving yourself to them because of who they are? I mean, after all, you might say, Josh, you don't know the people that God's put in my life. You don't know my wife. You don't know my children. 
You don't know my friends. You don't know my church. You don't know what you're saying when you say, just give yourself to them. You're right. I don't know. But I can almost guarantee you that the people that you serve, the people that you lead, aren't people so foolish that they would rebel against the God who just put a million of their forebears in the ground a stone's throw away. These people are standing almost within eyeshot, is that a word? Almost within eyesight, earshot. Almost within eyesight of a million headstones and they're doing the same thing. Can you identify with that? That's the people that Moses leads and he identifies himself with them. But he doesn't just do that. Secondly, he prays for them. He prays for them. He casts himself before the presence of the Lord in verse 6. And we know from prior times we've seen Moses do this, that he's praying. What makes this so remarkable to me is the indictment the people just brought in the prior verses. They don't indict God, do they? Look at what they say. Look at verse 3. The people quarreled with Moses. They say in verse 4, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? Verse 5. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place as though Egypt was peaches and cream for them. Who do they indict with this change of scene? Moses. They charge him with their situation. And how does Moses respond? To their indictment, not of God, yes, indirectly of God, but who do they indict in that moment? They charge him with their situation. Boy, brothers, I'll tell you what. It does not take you very long in leadership to receive the indictments of thankless people, doesn't it? You do not have to lead long. Terry used to say, and I'm, I, I know it's not unique to Terry, but Terry is the senior pastor here, or, or one of the, the, the teaching pastor here at Berean. Terry used to often use that little phrase in those moments, no good deed will go unpunished. It feels about like that a lot of times, doesn't it? Moses, fulfilling God's command for these people, is the one who gets charged with mistreating them. And what does he do? What does he do? He prays for them. So let me just ask you, I'm not going to dwell long on this, although we could do a whole conference on this, the prayer life of the leader. I, 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 I am absolutely certain I should not be the one who speaks at that conference. But I have come to know that leaders must make it their first order of business to pray. We must, brothers, and not just pray for people who love us and receive our leadership well. Have you ever had someone criticize you when you tried to give yourself to them and just tell you this is just not enough and they hammer you and they get personal and they attack you and your wife and your children? Do you know the solution to that I want to suggest to you? Well, at least one solution. Pray for them. And don't... <laughs> Let me caution you. Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I got prayers, I pray for them. I got prayers, I pray for them. I know some of those psalms. I know exactly where they are. I go to those places and say, God, 
dash their children's heads against the stone, dog on them. No, I don't mean those kind of prayers. I don't mean those kind of prayers. Pray for them to prosper. Pray for them to prosper. Pray that those who despitefully use you would come in God's unfathomable mercy and grace, would come into his blessing, into his mercy, and yes, if they've sinned, that they would repent. But pray for their blessing and how that is a reflection of the gospel as you bless your enemies. So Moses identifies with the people and he prays for the people. But boy, does he do some things poorly. The Lord identifies his sin in verse 12. Very specifically, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy. Moses did not regard the Lord as holy. Holy in the scriptures doesn't simply mean morally pure, sinless, upright. That tends to be how we use the word holy. A holy person is someone who's really good morally. Holy, in the most full sense biblically, means separate. It means different. It means unique. Theologians have long used the phrase holy other, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely different. That's holy. When you look at a landscaped yard and you see all yellow tulips and there's a red one in the middle, that is holy. There's one that stands out. It's in a category all by itself. That's what it means when we say God is holy. John Piper offers this wonderful um, illustration or pointed out this wonderful illustration of holy um, from the Chronicles of Narnia in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know that Prince Caspian sets out with a number of his subjects across the sea. And one of his subjects, little Reepicheep the gallant mouse, wants to make it to the edge of the sea and see if perhaps he wouldn't be able to go beyond the very end of what, or at least what seems to be the end, and sail right into Aslan's country. And in fact, the Don Treader gets to the end of all things, and there's still water out further, but it's too shallow for the ship to continue. And the, sh- the crew realizes it's time for Reepicheep to fulfill his personal quest. And he gets in his little personal boat, his little coracle, and he sails off until he's out of sight, and for all practical purposes, off the end of the known world. The word holy is where we come in human language when we've said all that we can say about God and there's no more to be said. All we can say at that point is, he's holy, he's different, he's unlike us in every way, and God indicts Moses because Moses, when you hit the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, you did not uphold me as holy. How? Why? Well, I want to suggest several ways that Moses violated the holiness of God. But first, I want to point out to you the obvious that leadership, brothers, exists for God, doesn't it? 
Why does God criticize Moses here? Why does God criticize Moses? Because he didn't demonstrate God as holy. God doesn't indict Moses for jeopardizing the people. Moses, I told you to speak, and you struck, and that might not have worked, and the people might not have gotten water. The Lord doesn't indict Moses for not providing for the people, because in fact, in God's mercy, he does provide. God indicts Moses for failing to uphold him as holy. Leadership exists in the first place for God. We don't serve our people and identify with our people and pray for our people for their sake primarily. We do it for God. And we certainly don't do it for our sake. So how is it that Moses profanes God's holiness? Three ways. First, Moses assumes the role of God. Did you see that? Did you see that in verse uh, in verse 10? Do you see in verse 10, in Moses' words, how he assumes the role of God? Hear now, you rebels. Who is it that usually addresses the people that way? God. God indicts the people. Had God leveled an indictment against the people when he spoke to Moses just a few verses earlier, do you see God in prior verses calling the people rebels? Let your eyes run back up there to verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. Does the Lord indict them? No. He doesn't indict them at all. He has done that prior, and Moses, in this case, assumes the role of God and speaks a word of judgment against them, and then, even more pretentious, look at what he says. Shall we bring water out of this rock? You know, it's profoundly difficult to lead people toward God when you substitute yourself for God, Amen. isn't it? It's profoundly difficult to lead people toward God when you've put yourself in the role of God. Gospel-centered leaders realize that people's most important encounter is not their encounter with us. It's their encounter with him. We exist to set that encounter up. That's why you're a leader. That's why you're a friend. I'm so glad to see young men here Fellas, I hope you'll realize that God has you in the lives of other young men Amen. to lead them toward him, not to lead them toward you, and certainly not to use them for you. That's the case for all of us. Our people's most important encounter is their encounter with God, so set them up with him. Don't assume his role. Second, the other thing, another thing Moses does poorly, and this is obvious, he disobeys God's instructions. God tells him, speak. Moses strikes. Disobeying God's commands, brothers, is a profanation of his holiness. We must get this clear in our heads. It seems to me that I am so accustomed to choosing which rules I will obey and which I will negotiate on. If the speed limit's 45, I'm quite comfortable to go 52. If the sign says no parking, I'm pretty free to consider myself an exception to that regulation and park there. 
at least if it's going to be a short time. It's so easy for us to say, well, that's not really that important. And not just in the world when it comes to civil ordinances, in our relationship to God. Well, I know the Bible says blank, but I'm doing pretty good. Fellas, we have to understand that disobedience in the slightest way is a profanation of the divine name. It profanes God's holiness. Why? Because when we make a decision to disobey clear directives from the Almighty, we display that we assume our authority is at least equal to his, if not greater. That's what that means when we say, oh, I don't need to obey that. That's not that big of a deal. We put ourselves in the position of God, disobey, and thus profane his holiness. I want to rationalize what Moses does here. I mean, come on. 40 plus years he's been with these jerks. The guy has dealt with them patiently and tenderly. And yes, he's been exasperated, but he's saved their lives several times. And he's put up with them and put up with them and put up with them. And finally, 40 years of frustration breaks loose and Moses vents it on them. And I just want to go, well, yeah, I would have too. Long time ago. And okay, so he disobeyed. But let's not make it out to be worse than it is. And God, every time he speaks of this sin, says, Moses, you profaned my holiness. And Moses and God talk about this scene several times. Not just here. They speak about it later in Leviticus. They speak about it in Deuteronomy. And finally, we read that the Lord says to Moses, don't talk to me about this again. What I've said, I've said. You profaned my holiness. It was not the people's fault. It was yours. So Moses assumes the role of God. He disobeys God. And the third way, he profanes God's holiness. He shows anger when the Lord shows mercy. I already pointed this out to you, but when Moses and Aaron throw themselves before God, he doesn't even mention the people's sin. The Lord doesn't, does he? All he does is give Moses an instruction, a directive, a plan to enact mercy. He says, get up from here, go out, gather the people, and speak to the rock, and I will water all these people and their flocks. Incredible mercy, unbelievable grace. I don't think Moses liked that idea. I don't think Moses felt it was appropriate to show them grace. I think that's what the Lord means when he says in verse 12, you did not believe me to uphold me as holy. What does he mean? What didn't he believe? He didn't believe that speaking to the rock would do it? No, I don't think that's Moses' problem. It could have been. I think Moses' problem was he didn't believe that mercy was a good idea here. Moses believed judgment was a better idea. Lord, let's see some of that fire. Remember that burning place? Let's see some of that plague wipe these people out. I'm sick of them just like you are. But the Lord shows mercy and Moses doesn't think it's a good idea. The problem with Moses' attitude in action is way more profound, brothers, than simply disagreeing with God, though. 
It's not simply that the Lord said black and Moses said white. The real profundity of the problem is the point at which Moses disagreed with God. The character quality that God was putting on display that Moses contradicted. That's the problem. What character quality was God putting on display? He was putting on display holy grace. Holy grace. God's holiness is his uniqueness, and in his grace, his uniqueness stands out more than perhaps in any other way. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and took advantage of the opportunity when receiving the Ten Commandments to say, will you please give me a chance to see you? I just want to see you. Show me your glory. And God was honored by that request and said, I will show you my glory. Well, I can't show you all my glory or I would annihilate you, but I will show you where I just was. I will pass through the area. I will remove my hand from your face and let you see the wake of glory that I leave in my trail. And that's what he does. He sticks Moses in a little crevice in the rock and he puts his hand over that crevice so Moses cannot see and thus be annihilated. And he comes past that crack and then he pulls his hand away and Moses beholds the glory of where God just was. And Moses hears the Lord announce his divine name. God proclaiming to himself in Moses' ears and showing to Moses' eyes glory. And what does he say? How does he describe himself? The divine calls himself the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What Moses hears as the divine name is a description of mercy. And when God wants to show mercy to his people and Moses steps forward and goes... Doggone you people, when will you get it right, you rebels? He profanes God's holy grace. When Moses took that stick and struck the rock and water flowed, God met the need of the people, didn't he? What did they need at that moment? Water. That rock was the embodiment of grace. And Moses took his staff and he hit it. Basically saying, doggone your grace. How do we profane the holy grace of God? Well, brothers, 2,000 years, 2,000 years from today, 2,000 years ago, that rock in the wilderness, gushing with water, was transformed into a man on a cross, gushing with a fountain of forgiveness and grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 tell us that the rock where these people drank was Jesus. Amen. What Moses took his staff and struck 
was the embodiment of God's grace to these people in the wilderness. He could not have struck at divine grace in a more profound way. And you know what, brothers? When we speak in anger, when we speak in self-righteous irritation at the people we lead, we take a stick and we strike at the embodiment of grace. The man hanging on the cross, speaking to God's people, I love you, I know you just the way you are, and I forgive you. And leaders in their self-righteous indignation so often grab a stick and say, that is not a good way to treat these people. They need, and we strike at the holy heart of a loving God. It's awesome and it's horrible when leaders strike in condemnation at their people. Moses didn't get to see the promised land. Moses didn't get to enter the promised land, did he? It cost him. It cost him almost everything he had led these people for. It didn't cost the people. Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking, and the gracious God waters them. Two million people? How many gallons were coming out of this rock? This wasn't a little trickle, brothers. This was a stream. This was a water fountain. He didn't just feed, he didn't just water the people, though. He watered all of them and all their animals. Millions of gallons of grace are gushing out of this rock. That's the heart of our God. Was there any grace for Moses? Yeah, there was. There was. The last time they were at Kadesh Barnea and the leaders came back and misrepresented God and said he's not big enough to take us there, they died on the spot. What happened to this leader who misrepresented God? God kept him. God sustained his life, and Moses begged to enter the land, and the Lord said, no, but I'll let you see it. That was grace. That was grace. So you know what? You know what this rock speaks to us, brothers? It says that your weaknesses, your failures, your regrets over your past are no match for the power of your God's holy grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 tells us that where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. We, in the gospel, see a picture of a God who is not content to match grace for sin. If you sin this much, he'll give this much grace. Oh no. His grace super abounds over your sin. So take heart. There's mercy for you. Let me make this application. If you don't know the grace of this Jesus who hung on that cross, there's one thing for you to do. Repent of your sin and come to him thirsty for water and drink. He wants to water you. He wants to satisfy. He hung there to forgive you, to bring you to God. So come to him. If you are a believer in Jesus, two applications. 
besides others that have suggested, suggested themselves to you. Two applications I want to make to you. Number one, repent. I sat in my office yesterday and read through this passage again and wept. Wept at the times that I've expressed impatience and anger directly at people or indirectly in my heart. And this passage calls me and calls you to repent. Repent of every harsh word. Repent of every evil thought. Repent of every moment of self-righteous indignation. Doggone those people. Repent. There's mercy for you. And it flows in the millions of gallons. The second application is draw near to that cross. If we're going to become gracious leaders, we have to be leaders who know well the grace of the cross. You will never treat people with gushing grace until you receive grace from the Savior. Preach the gospel to yourselves every day, brothers. Draw near the cross every day. Every day survey the wondrous cross. And when you see, in spite of your sins, a Savior hanging and bleeding to forgive you, you will become the sort of leader who can identify with your people and pray with them, who will not put your place in the pla- yourself in the place of God. You will not disobey and profane his holy name. And you won't show anger when he shows mercy. The one who's received mercy will show mercy. Our God, I thank you I thank you there's still water coming from the rock for the likes of me there's still blood flowing for the forgiveness of sinner of a sinner like me and the cross that speaks mercy to me and to each one of these men beckons us to be men who speak and show and live joyful mercy for the sake of those we love and lead. And so I pray that you would open our eyes the rest of this evening, tomorrow, and help us to behold the wondrous cross. In Jesus' name.